0: Hello and welcome to Rural Business Uncovered, brought to you by the CLA, where each week we discuss matters affecting the rural sector. The Country Land and Business Association are the only organisation dedicated to protecting and defending the rights of landowners and rural businesses.
1: When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring.
0: In 2020, James Bevan, chief executive of the Environment Agency, said in a speech, the UK has a reputation for being a wet, rainy nation. This perception is wrong, he said. In fact, 2020 was one of the hottest years on record, building on temperature records smashed in the summers of 2018 and 2019. It's predicted that with climate change, these weather patterns will continue with all areas of the UK projected to get hotter and drier. Combined with an estimated population Increase of 6 million people in England and Wales by 2043, this will place a huge and increasing pressure on our water environment. Many areas of England will be facing significant water shortages by 2050. If no action is taken between 2025 and 2050, around 3,435 million extra litres of water per day will be needed for public water supply to address future water pressures. The way we currently manage our water resources will no longer be sustainable, so we need a new, more holistic approach to water management to increase resilience across England and Wales to drought and dry weather. This will require collaboration across all water using sectors, as well as individual efforts to reduce water consumption and increase efficiency. Here to discuss all of this, we're joined by Nancy Smith and Alice Ritchie. Nancy Smith is the Communications and Engagement Executive at Water Resources East, an organization established to find ways of collaborating across sectors and find innovative solutions to potential water shortages in the east of England. Nancy is also the host of her own podcast called What is Water? We're going to hear from her about the current state of the water environment, those competing pressures, and then how. Water Resources East is redefining what collaboration in the water environment looks like. Alice Ritchie is the climate change and water lead for the CLA and will shortly be publishing a CLA Water Strategy, a vision for the water environment to 2030. Alice will be discussing today how important water is for food production, but also how farmers and landowners can take individual action to adapt to the impacts of climate change and reduce their reliance on water, helping to support the environment. Well, welcome, Nancy and Alice. It's great to have you both um, on the podcast. Nancy, if I can come to you first, perhaps you can tell our listeners a little bit more about your background and your interests in, in protecting and preserving water.
2: Uh, yeah, absolutely. So I my journey into water started uh, when I was doing my undergraduate degree and I was looking at people's right to water um, in Latin America and natural resources in general. Then I, I went to work abroad for a bit and I and saw how the politics and the culture and the social aspects that we might not often think about Um, affect people's access to water so the first thing I did when I got back to the UK was just googled water masters UK and um, luckily there were quite a few out there so I did a master's degree in water security and international development and as part of that I worked abroad again and when I came back I uh, got a job at Anglian Water which is one of the public water supply companies Um, I started as an intern and started working more and more on Water Resources East, and three years later, uh, here I am.
0: Well, Brit, it's brilliant you've managed to, to find uh, a place of work which is clearly uh, along the lines of your interests and, and building upon all the academic work that you've done. And Alice, I know you've got an academic background having studied uh, water and the environment over many years. Uh, t- tell our listeners a bit more about your interest around the subject and the type of work you do for the CLA. Yeah,
3: of course. I think. I came into the water space really through climate change, which is the, the thing that I'm the most passionate about. Um, but yeah, my background was in New Zealand, working on climate change and agriculture policy there, and then really got involved with water when I started with the CLA. And I think for me, the main element of it was that farmers and landowners are really at the front line of the impacts of climate change. And the area where we're really seeing those impacts of climate change is in the water environment. It's you know, too much water or not enough water, it's flood and drought, it's, you know, changing pressures on water quality and things like that. And I just feel like, yeah, climate change is putting such extreme pressures on our water environment, that that's how I became really interested in it. I thought if we can find a way to increase our resilience from a water perspective, Will really be increasing our resilience to climate change more broadly.
0: Uh, and, and you're right to refer to the extremes. You know, we're recording this podcast uh, in in the mid uh, middle of April, where where I am now in, in West Wales. We're, we're desperate for rain. It's been dry for for several weeks, and we, we're desperate we need for water to get some grass growing here. Uh, but a few months ago, we had a severe flooding as well. So. Very much um, a, a, a story and a picture that can be um, described for for many parts of, of the countries. Those extremes, uh, and Nancy. You know we heard there about agriculture being uh, being a big user uh, of water and and obviously water having a big bearing on productivity as well. Mm-hmm. You know, what are the other main sectors in the UK that use water? Who, who are the main consumers?
2: So um, we obviously have public water supply. So just water for me and you to drink every day. Um, there is also energy sector and the food and beverage and manufacturing sectors as well as agriculture. But um, I I think it's too broad to to put labels on, so this is the UK and this is how much water this sector and this sector and this sector uses, because you have to take into account the regional variations and the contexts. Um, And then also thinking about the fact that there's different types of water as well. So taking it down to England, it is pretty unique in the sense that public water supply takes a leading role in blue water use. So that's irrigated water from bodies such as rivers or reservoirs or groundwater aquifers and lakes, etc. Um, and then next, the next prominent use is agriculture. And then taking it even more specifically, we can look at eastern England, which is the area that Water Resources East operates in. So in a, in a dry year, which who knows if 2021 is going to be one of them or not by this point, but um, in a in a dry year, up to 85% of blue water is used for public water supply. And in agriculture, while rain crop production, which I'm sure all of your listeners know about, there's no need for me to explain that in too, too much detail, um, spray irrigation, so blue water use, can use as much as, 8% of the total of what's available at the time in a dry year, followed by the energy sector. And then, as I said before, food and drink manufacturing. So it's kind of like a, a really rich tapestry of usage, but public water supply always comes up on top and it has done for a while.
0: And it's interesting to hear there. You describe the different types of water. Blue water. There's also green water. Perhaps you can explain to our listeners a bit more about what is meant by green water.
2: Yeah. So, so green water is is basically any water that falls from the sky directly onto the land. So, uh, rain-fed crop production in eastern England is is quite considerable. Um, but we also get this thing similar to to Wales, where we have a period of a lot of water. And then if we're unlucky, we'll have a long period where there isn't any water. So being able to capture that water in times of plenty and use it in times of deficit is really important. Um, Because it's I think, yeah, people need to and you've got grey water as well, which is it's another thing. So. What are you just saying? We need more water. It's like, yeah, I agree with you, but what kind of water do we need? Or we need to manage water better. It's like, I agree with you, but what kind of water do we need to manage better? Um, which I think can, you know, water can be generalised that way sometimes.
0: Yeah, Alice, what's your view on that in terms of the difference, different uses of, of the different types of water? If you're using green water, then presumably that's that's a good way of, of growing grass, growing crops and, and rearing livestock compared to, to the use of blue water if you're trying to limit that use potentially.
3: Yeah, I think it's really important that we do realise in the UK, farmers and land managers mainly rely on uh, on rainfall. Um, for most of their farm businesses. And out of all of the uh, the total amount of water that's taken out of our rivers and then used for other purposes, only 1% of that actually goes towards um, agricultural purposes. So what we're working with here is largely um, green water. I always, I always say them wrong, but I think green water is the right one. Largely rainfall, a really efficient way to use water. And, you know, it would have been falling on those crops or falling on that pasture either way, so you can't really consider it wasted. It's it's the blue water. It's where we're taking it um, out of the environment and putting it on crops, sort of artificially through irrigation systems or whatever it might be. That's the area where we need to be making sure we're being as efficient as possible to reduce our wider impact on the environment as much as possible. And again, that's where all the sectors have to come together, which I'm hoping we can um, chat with further about today, Nancy, because that's how groups like Water Resources East come into it, is we're all competing for the same resource in those areas. So we need to be making sure we're working with each other um, rather than sort of, you know, fighting for our fair share necessarily. And that is that comes all, all back to blue water, all that water that we yeah, are taking out of the environment.
0: And uh, Nancy, how can we collaborate between sectors? I know that's key to, to what you you do with your work with Water Resources East. And how, how can we facilitate and encourage that collaboration?
2: So for me, um, well, not for me, for WRA as an organization, first of all, we understand that the people or the water use sectors, they need to understand each other's water realities and kind of come out of their silos of of thinking and working. And that's not something that's been done on purpose. Um, I think it's just something that's happened over decades and decades. And as Alice said, maybe seeing each other as competitors rather than seeing each other as um collaborators that need to use the same resource and if if one doesn't have enough then that's in that's going to affect others as well everyone's linked in this in this like circle that we work in Um, so water resources east is one of these regional water groups and there's one uh, as one of five of them and they are used as as facilitators and platforms for kind of open conversations and collaborative opportunities that takes a while Um, getting people together to talk and to find out what each other's problems are or what each other's opportunities are takes takes so much time more time than you would think and I guess on paper you you could say it was the harder option but it is the the solution we think that has like the most longevity to have sustainable results um, so, yeah, getting together and talking, having people understand each other. Uh,
0: analysis, it's good to see the, the, the work that's been done there in, in the east of England. But would you say that the, the approach to water differs in different parts of England and Wales? Um, certain parts of the country might have higher rainfall than others. So some farmers, some landowners might, might consider water to be a bigger problem to them than others. Do you find that in your work with the CLA that you find differences of opinions and, and attitudes to, towards protecting water?
3: Yeah, there's certainly different water needs across the country, both from um, the water availability side, you know, there is less rainfall in the east and more rainfall in the west, very sort of generally and broadly, but also um, agriculture in the east tends to be more crop production and things that require water, whereas in the west it's a little bit more livestock focused. So it's a slight... It doesn't really make a lot of sense when you think about it like that. I mean, it does when you look at the geography and that kind of side of things. But generally, we need water where we don't have it, and then we don't really need water where we've got plenty of it. So there's hugely different considerations around the country. But this, and this is where it becomes quite important, how we collaborate and and what these different sort of groups like Water Resources East are doing we're all facing potential water shortages in the future. We're all looking at a seven to eight degree warmer UK. We're all looking at massive changes in water availability. So I think it would be really short sighted and naive of you know in the southwest, for example, to say, "Oh, we're fine. You know, we've got plenty of water. We'll be fine in the future." And so the good news is, is they're not. They're not doing that. They've created um, similar groups to water resources east around the country um i'll get them wrong if i try and name check them all but there's one in the north there's one cross border with wales one in the southeast and one in the southwest and they're all looking at slightly using water resources east as a blueprint i think looking at how they can find ways to collaborate better across the different sectors and tackle the different um yeah sort of different pressures and things like that the difference might be that they look um, more at flood as well and how they can think about that excess water they get in the winter and how to reuse it. You know, there might be slightly different focuses in the different regions, but ultimately we are all in the same boat.
0: I know you touched upon this right at the very beginning, Alice, in terms of the relationship between water and the environment and the impact of climate change. Tell us a bit more about that. How big a challenge is this? It's
3: quite an interesting one. I think the way that it tends to be thought about is, when you think about a river, you know it's a really, really valuable ecosystem, um, with you know hugely varied wildlife uh, and you know flora and fauna and things like that. And ultimately, the health of those rivers impacts human health and well-being and things like that. Um, but it's not just about it's not just about our rivers. We know that flooding and drought can cause huge damage to uh, land-based um, habitats and ecosystems. Um, impact soil health and things like that so essentially water is is intrinsically linked to the health of the environment more widely and to biodiversity more widely um from in terms of yeah when we have these extreme events uh like flood and drought it has a negative impact on the environment but also the healthier our water is the healthier the rest of the environment is and if we're creating these uh different habitats like wetlands and things like that you're both improving the environment on land and improving the environment um, in the water but I mean one of the biggest issues we have at the moment is pollution incidents from, from farming but also from water companies um, in the form of sewage and things like that and that kind of direct impact on um, surface rivers is becoming a real problem um, and again having those impacts on the wider environment and that's a that's a problem that really, really needs to be sorted out quite quickly if we want to make sure that the water environment is contributing to sort of a wider, healthy environment.
0: And indeed, that's the second uh, aspect to all of this. Is in addition to water availability is protecting water quality. Uh, yeah. Nancy, is that something that the organisation is looking at as well?
2: Yeah, 100 percent. So um, Alice talked about the five, the other, you know, how there's five regional water groups in in total and they were formed at various times but um so but water resources east is different from them in the fact that we're entirely independent and we're functioning as a, a not-for-profit company limited by guarantee so that means that we're not um water company led so our factor on, on water quality and quantity together is very much in line with with what we seek to do um we agree that they're this is why I love working with Alice she's been on our my podcast as well and I always find myself just nodding and agreeing and saying yeah yeah you're totally right you're totally right um you can't have one without the other they are intrinsically linked and WRE seeks to look at water quality as well. So that comes down to the environment. Without a healthy environment, your water quality is, is gonna is just not gonna be there at all. And without a healthy environment, you can't have anything else beyond that. So, I just, um,
3: yeah, please go on, go for it. I was gonna say, I, I love the way that Water Resources East is looking at all this stuff and the CLA is trying to do the same thing by having that real natural capital approach, really <laughs> thinking about the water environment in the round and considering how catchments play into it and how we can look at everything holistically and I know those mm-hmm. words are so overused but the one area that I think they really do mean something is in the water environment we have to be thinking about where the water starts where it ends up you know thinking mm-hmm. about oceans and thinking about um, upland peat areas where lots of our water comes from and things like that and considering who is impacted all the way downstream literally mm-hmm. um, and how all of those people can work together to make the environment better and that's why these groups, I think, are so important, but also why farmers and land managers and those who potentially own or manage most of that land downstream, why they're so important. And, uh, yeah, exactly. So just because you're
2: upstream of a catchment, thinking, well, well, I'm upstream, so I can not do whatever I want, but my actions, it, it might affect people down the catchment, but that's not my concern. But then people down the catchment are thinking, well, hang on a second what you're doing is affecting me so please understand my my problems and my realities and maybe we can work together to find a solution but for example with abstraction where is that having a detrimental impact on the environment and what options can we develop uh to restore and enhance you know the environment around that and in the catchment for example
0: The CLA is about to publish a water strategy, a comprehensive look at the water environment and the role of farmers and landowners in protecting it. Coming off the back of a wet winter and now facing a dry summer, it's critical that we increase our resilience to flood and drought while protecting the environment. This document will be available on the CLA website shortly and will be a useful resource for all those involved in farming, food production or the environment. Nancy, from your experience in facilitating a lot of collaboration, but between sectors, have you have you found that actually different industries can learn from each other? Have you found potentially within the farming community, you might have farmers who will share information w- within agricultural circles, but they might not necessarily engage w- with with wider industry outside of that. But but your organisation gives those businesses and those organisations and industries a platform to share information. Have, have you found that to be a positive outcome of your work?
2: Yeah, it has been. So I think uh, the farming and the agricultural community in the past was quite used to, you know, operating within their own sphere and having a, a, a sometimes, you know, difficult relationship with the EA and when it came to abstraction licensing and things like this. But with the abstraction reform that's having, happening there's such a this kind of a shift now and we we have 150 plus members and it grows every day and we've got some really forward-thinking um landowners and farmers that are part of that and, and it's just so keen to be a part of the programs that we have going for example systematic conservation planning which i can go into more detail um as well as the norfolk water strategy um there's there's so many innovative things going on in the region with farmers and landowners which is great to see and Alice you you know more and loads about that as well for sure um so I think it was a problem in the past but I think in in the in the main um farmers and landowners are starting to twig that I need to change. Like we need to change. We all need to change together. And it's kind of it's kind of going really quickly, actually. Um, and I'm really excited to see what the CLA Water Strategy has to say as well in that regard.
3: And you might um, also think this. I'm not sure, but this has been one of the you know slight blessings of lockdown and everything like that is having lots of these meetings yeah. taking place online and being able to have these big stakeholder forums and webinars and all sorts of things online which often works a lot better for farmers who might not have the time you know to take out of their day to get in the car and drive an hour away and sit down for a three-hour seminar or something and then get back in the car and drive back that's a huge chunk of you know really valuable on-the-ground farm time that gets taken away so it's been quite helpful for a lot of our members um, and others that they're able to get involved in these forums um, or listen in on talks and things like that without having to leave the farm without having to you know sort of take that big chunk out of the day so I think that's been fantastic in getting a different audience together and different people involved as well.
2: It's been exactly the same for us so we have if uh, we have three or four yearly um, stakeholder webinars if you're a member you, you you come along to these and we basically say or um, we'll discuss what we're what we're working on and discuss how uh, members can get involved and We've been able to increase attendance by that by two, two or three times because it's on that online platform. So it's definitely been a blessing in disguise. Uh, absolutely. And this is affecting how we are going forward in the next few years with forming our regional plan. So we have this to work collaboratively on the regional plan means that there's no kind of it's not a consultation that it's not a plan that we make in isolation and then put out to everyone and say, hey, this is what the plan is. Let us know what you think. Uh, we'll change it if, if we need to. Uh, we'll see what you have to say about it. It's a plan that's formed with our members. So. We're going through a phase of training and planning and conferences where everyone comes together. We teach them everything. We we help them to understand the simulators that we're working with and the water realities of different sectors and and understanding the trade-offs. And I think doing that on a digital platform is, is going to be so beneficial. Obviously, seeing people face-to-face is great, and we do plan to do that. It's always nice to put names to faces and actually... Share a conversation over a cup of tea. But yeah, I agree with Alice. It's been, it's been a really steep learning curve, but a beneficial one.
0: And Alice, in your work in developing the the CLA's vision and strategy, have you taken into account the changing regulatory landscape that surrounds water quality Um, coming from Wales? No doubt you'll be aware of the new water quality regulations that were introduced quite controversially if you speak to some farmers and landowners. where do you think all of that sits? Because um, some within the farming community might think that they have to abide to regulations that other industries don't necessarily, and perhaps are wrongly accused of, of pollution incidents in rivers, where there are other industries or, or also um, are at fault at, from time to time. This is a tricky area of regulation. What's your view?
3: Mm, it is it's a tricky area. And what I think we're seeing at the moment is regulation changing at pace and at a really um, uncertain time anyway. You know, we've got the, we're going through this agricultural transition um, and shifting to a different um, payment system where clean water is considered a public good that can be paid for by the government to farmers. Um, But at the same time we've got, yeah, so in in Wales, new environmental regulations um, that change the way land managers can use their land. And it's a sort of blanket approach that applies to most of the country, I think. Um, that is not the same in England as well. And it does seem a little bit unfair. It does seem like the agriculture sector gets targeted disproportionately and maybe because the government thinks it's an easier option than to tackle water companies. But, I mean, you know, there were 2,204, I think, pollution events in 2019 from water companies. um, And that was the highest level of pollution, of environmental pollution in five years. And... Landowners and farmers are taking already taking a huge amount of action. We did a uh, admittedly quite a small survey of CLA members that showed the vast majority of them, nearly ninety percent of them, had taken specific action to reduce their impact on the water environment. Um, and this is not necessarily because they have had contact with the environment agency or because they knew that the rules were changing. It's just you know good business practice. It's what it's what they do but at the same time we also know that that agriculture and farming is a cause of agricultural pollution it is a leading cause of agricultural of our water pollution sorry so i think when it comes to to water pollution we need to get our own house in order we need to make sure we're farming in a way that protects the environment protects water quality but at the same time, be calling on other sectors to do their bit as well, because I mean, that, that's the nature of it. That's why it has to be looked at holistically is because it's it's diffuse pollution It's and it's in the water. It's going downstream. So if one person's doing the right thing, but, you know, the neighbors aren't, that is damaging the entire water environment. Everybody, farmers included, have to play their part. Um, but government regulation. And government incentives and funding schemes and grant schemes also need to acknowledge that it's not always that easy to have a you know strong business and to be investing in these big technological solutions and things like that. So farmers need support to do it, but they are definitely doing it and going to do it.
0: And do you think it's a big positive step to have water quality considered a public good because that does then open the door for public financial support to farmers for doing works and actions that have a positive impact on water quality and water availability?
3: Yeah, I hope so because at the moment um, actions that farmers take to improve water quality often have very little um, business impact. So to compare it to something like climate change, um, often the actions that you take to reduce your carbon footprint also help your bottom line. It's not quite the same when it comes to water quality because it's, it's often big investment that's needed like slurry storage and things like that. So acknowledging the importance of protecting the water environment through legislation like the Agriculture Act um, is yeah, really, really important. And we're really hoping it will see some big grant funding for farmers to help sort
0: of get involved in that kind of stuff. And Nancy, um, I'd like to pick up on a couple of the projects. I know you mentioned a few of them uh, along the way, but perhaps you can explain to our listeners a bit more about um, the projects you've been involved with, with Water Resources East, uh, for example, the Natural Capital Planning through Systematic Conservation Planning and the Norfolk Water Strategy. Tell us a bit more about those.
2: Yeah, so, so just picking up on what Alice, Alice said, it's great that farmers are engaging and our members, you, you know, for example... Spain's Hall Estate, Summersham Estate, and Sandringham. Um, water quality is great, and it's great that to have these incentives. But then, it's if you if you just plant trees there, or you create a wildlife area here or there, and and it, if you don't understand where is best to put it, um, and why you're ultimately doing, it and how it works, then it's it's not going to make you know the the positive results aren't aren't going to aren't going to impact much on the water quality so with systematic conservation planning um, this is through a, a company called Biodiversify, who who are just who are just great. Um, I mean, I, I I would say that obviously, um, it's kind of this recognition. Yeah, yeah. Thank you, thanks, Alice. Thanks. There's a, a recognition that we need to find ways to improve and enhance the environment, the environment by developing a, a deep understanding of the natural capital in the region to maximise the ecosystem services that are are being delivered. So. So we've teamed up with Biodiversify and we've got some funding from WWF UK with support from Coca-Cola to develop a natural capital plan for Eastern England. And it's really exciting. And it's the, I, I, I'm I biased as well, because I'm working on this project with Biodiversify. Uh, but it's the first time that the systematic conservation process has been applied in the UK um, and the first time it's been applied on the scale in the world. And we're coming up with our, our first plan in uh, June, June or July. So, so systematic conservation planning combines two things. So it's this social process that WRE absolutely loves and a prioritization analysis. So it's about identifying how and where to act to improve natural capital in the most cost effective manner. Because if you are creating wetlands and and you're creating wildlife corridors and putting trees up, you're, you're spending all this money. But is it the most efficient way to do it? So basically, in practice, what this means is asking everyone in the region, all our members and not just our members, you're not a member, that's okay, we don't mind. Uh, asking them what their natural capital plans are, what their ambitions are, tell us what they are. And we map all of these together, uh, together with whatever environmental policies and plans are currently in existence. <laughs> and there are loads, it's, it's far beyond the 25-year the environment plan. And we determine where where's best to establish, restore or protect various aspects of natural capital and that's never been done before so an individual farmer for example will be able to go onto this map and say oh there's my farm brilliant okay let me zoom in on my farm here oh it says here that that would be really good for me to have a wetland here or maybe i should plant some trees here and and that's considering all the other projects that might be going on in that person's area so i i mean I think it's it's a great it's a great thing it's a great uh, initiative that we're doing and we're hoping that the results will be really favourable for everyone. Well,
0: what's your view, Alice? Uh, I'm sure you've been following the development uh, of that project closely in terms of your own strategy. What, what's your thoughts and feelings about what's uh, what's currently being done by WRE? Yeah,
3: I remember going to a talk actually by Sam Sinclair from Biodiversify years ago. It feels like maybe two and a half years ago. And thinking it was so cool and just so interesting and but but wondering you know like how's it all going to work what's it actually going to look like and it's been so cool that wra has just taken it and run with it because this is this is what we need this is what farmers and landowners and all the other sectors need is having everybody around the table talking the same language and thinking about things from a natural capital perspective so i love that it's putting all that stuff all those words into practice um, and what I'm really hoping is that CLA members in that region um, can really get yeah get on board with it, and I think we've got a big role in in pushing it out to them and showing them how it works and what they can do and how they can use it. And we've got some of our really fantastic members um, already involved. But it's it's a cool project that I really hope we can learn a lot from um, for other regions in the UK as well, and for other industries. You know, not it doesn't have to just be water necessarily, but Viewing land with that real natural natural capital focus is 100% the way we need to be going in the future.
0: Nancy, what's the role of technology in in all of this in terms of managing water availability and quality? Are there examples of either innovative projects or innovative pieces of technology that are being used possibly in other countries, other countries uh, who are facing water pressures, um, possibly even extremes of water stresses far worse than what we're currently experiencing. Are, are there other things that we can learn from other countries?
2: hundred uh, percent. So this is why WRI was set up in the first place, to learn from international best practice and to see how a integrated water resource management approach could be taken and applied to the uk and i i spend at at least the first hour of my day just reading articles about things that are happening all over the world oh that's really cool this is great oh my gosh maybe um wasting wasting time i'm not sure but you know knowledge is everything right um but in i'm always so surprised at how much cool stuff is actually going on in the uk now and eastern england and it's like every day there's something new so there's a, a hydroponic greenhouse project going on in, in Norfolk and Suffolk at the moment uh, called Low Carbon Farming and a world first at uh, two locations, 70 acres of greenhouses. Like These are massive greenhouses. Like I think they're the size of the O2 or something. And they, they're looking to produce 12% of the UK's tomatoes and reduce the carbon footprint of growing such products in the UK by 75%. And it's all kind of working in a closed loop system as well. So there's like uh, water recirculation and it uses 10 times less water and it makes it more productive. And uh, I I encourage everyone who's listening to just to go and check it out, low carbon farming. It's really, really, really cool. And it's uh, always the example I use when people are like, well, well, yeah. I mean, so what's going on in the UK then? What's going on in Eastern England? Like as if as if nothing as if nothing good ever happens here. It's like, wow, well, look at this, you know.
0: Alice, if, from your point of view, I'm sure you've got extensive experience of other global examples of best practice. What what are things have you seen over the years that uh, have really caught your interest and inspiration?
3: Uh, I think the thing that I'm most interested in at the moment is arguably the opposite of cool high tech stuff. Um, but this move towards Kind of regenerative agriculture and agroecology and a big focus on soil health is seeing a really big change for many farmers in how they manage their water um, both from a water availability and also a water quality perspective but equally how they increase their resilience to flood and drought because essentially if you're managing your land in a way that's constantly improving soil health um, and increasing soil organic matter you're improving the soil structure and it's allowing the soil to um, hold water, act like a giant sponge essentially, so that you're far more resilient to drought um, because that water sort of stays stored in there for for times when it's needed, but equally more resilient to flood because it's acting like a sponge taking all that excess water and stopping it just sitting on top of the land. so different practices like using cover crops, um, min-till, no-till, good grazing management, those kind of things, Um, using nature-based solutions like tree planting and wetland restoration and creating sort of riverside habitats and riparian planting and all those really nature-focused solutions. That's what I think is the most exciting thing at the moment because they're having such a massive difference. And yeah, reducing how much water farmers and landowners need because it's all already there in the soil and you're not having to abstract it from rivers um, and equally as the water kind of filters through the really healthy soil the pollutants get filtered out so what ends up back in the rivers is also is improving um, water quality so it's kind of yes, yeah, I always think it's the opposite of cool exciting tech but I think it is equally exciting um, and we're seeing it all around the world there's big projects going on in Australia and um, the US and New Zealand in particular but it's definitely coming up the radar in the UK and plenty of um, CLA members i have been speaking to recently in both England and Wales are starting to look at yeah how they can use these types of techniques.
0: And the good thing about that, that these techniques and these solutions are very simple, are very straightforward. They're practical measures that can be um, undertaken on most farms. And like you said, it doesn't rely on this high-tech input, which might put some people off or, or, or might be hard to get your head around. These are core good practice basic things simple actions potentially and and with clean water and water quality being recognised as a public good it does open that opportunity for future farm support schemes which will come down the tracks very very quickly to include those actions within what um what farmers are expected to do and what farmers might get paid to do in the future
3: mm, i think it's so important to make sure that these kind of things are included in future agriculture policy because the one thing i mean i, I talk about you know regenerative agriculture like it's this big amazing solution that has no downsides but if we're being honest in many cases we haven't yet seen scientific proof that those kind of um, those kind of farming options or techniques necessarily increase yields there is some kind of anecdotal evidence but the science and the data just isn't quite there yet to back it up so we need to be one investing in new research and development and those kind of solutions but also making sure we are still incentivizing them through through agriculture policy, because for some for some people, potentially, it might result in yeah, lower production levels. But that's all sort of, I think, stuff that needs to be thought really carefully about and invested in in the next few years.
0: Uh, and Nancy, from your point of view and the work you do with WRE, what's gonna be your focus th- uh, for the next two to three years uh, with the, the, all the projects that are underway? What's gonna be the key things that you want to achieve in the coming years?
2: So we've got um, our regional plan that is going to be releasing its final draft uh, in 2023. So everything we're doing at the moment is focusing on that. Um, So as well as, for example, the systematic conservation planning project I was telling you about, we also have a programme of work called the Norfolk Water Strategy Um, so creating a water resource management plan for them uh, through an approach called water fund and using blended financing so a governance and financing mechanism which allows public and private sectors to work collaboratively and looking at innovative financing models for that that's just started Uh, there's uh, so much going on um, I had to get the post-its out and stick them all on my wall the other day just to, <laughs> just to get it right in my mind uh, what we say so what we had to do but at the heart of it is getting our members together and taking them through some training and some planning workshops understanding where the trade-offs might be, um, understanding how much water we're going to need uh, how and how we can best use the water that we've got, and how we can reduce demand, what policy What policy looks like as well, what the policy landscape looks like, because they, they have to match up. It's not going to work if we kind of just go off and do our own thing and say, oh, this is what needs to be done. If the policy is not there, then nothing will really change so much. So we want to identify opportunities where we can deliver wider benefits and I mean, it just goes back to what we were talking to at the beginning. We're in this perpetual cycle, I think, where we have these flood events um, and then this inundation of water and then nothing. And we we just get away, like get it away, get it out of the landscape. And then a few months down the line, we're into summer and we think, oh my gosh, we're in a drought. Now, if only we had that water that we had those months before, if there was a way that we could capture it and and take advantage of it when we've got, when we had it so exploring innovative ways of doing that as well capturing it in the landscape working with our partners to to find innovative solutions
0: and finally alice uh, as i mentioned right at the very beginning you're about to publish a new um, water strategy for the cla perhaps you can give listeners a quick sneak preview of what's going to be in that new vision document yeah
3: of course so what we're really looking at is what Nancy's just said, the evidence is really clear. We know that water is going to be an increasingly unpredictable resource, um, and that society is demanding clean water in a thriving water environment. So things need to change. Um, and our vision for 2030 is that all rural land-based businesses have reliable access to water supplies for both their current and their future needs, but also they're resilient to the risk of flood, resilient to drought, and a recognised their great stewardship of water quality and water resources. So, we're looking at all sorts of different actions that we need from both farmers and land managers, but also from government and then also from um, the private sector uh, across three key areas. The first is drought and water availability, so, lots of the stuff we've been discussing today. Uh, the second is a thriving water environment, which is really about you know, water quality, water pollution, that kind of thing. And um, the third is all about flooding and land drainage and and increasing resilience to flood, which is probably still at the top of a lot of people's minds after the winter that we've had. So we're trying to, even though all those three things are quite different, we've acknowledged in the document that you need to have that natural capital approach to make sure you're actually viewing water in a holistic way, viewing those three areas as intrinsically linked, because they are, um, and we're really hoping that it'll be picked up by government um, and picked up by other people sort of across the water environment and able to be used as a blueprint for what what needs to happen and what needs to change, but also a sort of compelling case for land managers. This is what we need to do, to do what we need to do. This is what we need from from the government. And this is what we need to do on our own. And this is how we're going to get it
0: done. Well, I'm sure there'll be a lot of people uh, eagerly anticipating the, the release of that document, that, that strategy that you mentioned. And uh, 2030 isn't that far away, isn't it? So, so I'm sure there's uh, going to be some some clear, direct action needed to, to reach those, those desired goals and outcomes. But it's all achievable. It's all possible through practical application. And as indeed has been a, a continuing theme throughout this podcast of collaboration collaboration well alice ritchie and nancy smith thank you both uh for for joining the podcast it's been absolutely fascinating this is just i think we're just scratching the surface of this topic of water there's so much more that we can go on and discuss and who knows there might be a future podcast as as a follow-up but uh, for today thank you very much to both of you uh, for joining us
3: thanks so much alid thanks alid
0: If you're not a member of the CLA, you can join today. More information can be found on our website, www.cla.org.uk. Thank you for listening, and I hope you can join us again soon. You've been listening to the Rural Business Uncovered podcast, the CLA's weekly podcast released every Friday. You can find all our episodes wherever you get your podcasts, or just search Rural Business Uncovered on your chosen podcast provider. Remember to hit subscribe or follow to make sure you don't miss an episode.
1: Hold up.